0: Scripture reading this evening is Psalm 66. Psalm 66. This is God's Word. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say unto God, How terrible art Thou in Thy works! Through the greatness of Thy power shall Thine enemies submit themselves unto Thee. All the earth shall worship Thee and sing unto Thee. They shall sing to Thy name. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in His doing toward the children of men. If I may pause there for a moment in the occasion of the second use of that word terrible. You mustn't think of awful in the sense of bad, but awful in the sense of full of awe. God's works fill us with awe. And in that sense, God is terrible in His works, verse 2. And terrible such that His works fill us with awe. Now verse 6. These are some of His works. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in Him. He ruleth by His power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of His praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For Thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. But Thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into Thy house with burned offerings. I will pay Thee my vows Which my lips have uttered, and my mouth hath spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Come and hear, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, but verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. That's the reading of the chapter. The text is verse 16. 16, where David, making somewhat of a transition in the psalm, says, come and hear all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. It's as though David motions to the people of God and says to them, come, come to me real close, and I want you to listen. And what I am going to tell you is what he has done for my soul. What God has done for my soul. David begins the psalm in a little different vein where he makes the same motion and calls the people to come. And when they come, they're going to see. Not hear, that comes later. But see. David says, I want you to see what God has done. And I want you to see what God has done. And in response to that, praise God. That's how the psalm begins. A call of David to sing and make a joyful noise to God. All ye lands. Sing forth the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in all thy works. And then David goes on to explain what God has done. Awesome works. Verse 3. Remember that word terrible? Verse 2 rather, and then again in verse 5, terrible works. What works did God do for the church that were so awesome? Well, verse 6 is the heart of it. He redeemed them from the land of bondage. He opened the sea and made a path right through that sea so that they could go forth on dry land. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There we rejoice in Him. That's one thing. But what God also does is rule over men. That's verse 7 and following. By His power forever. And then what He also does is rule over men so that men ride over our heads. Those are works of God for which we ought to praise Him. Painful works. He rules in such a way that He even lays a net for us. Verse 11, God brought us into the net. God laid affliction upon our loins. Will you praise God for that too? That's what David says. Look and see what God has done. And you ought to make His praise glorious for that. And even in verse 12, he says, God brought us through fire and God brought us through water. Do you remember, David says to the people of God, what God has done? And when you do, you will praise Him for it. But then David transitions in the very last part of the psalm to a little bit different subject. And instead of saying, come and see, he says, come and hear. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to what I say. And what I say is not now what God has done for the church generally, but I want to tell you something very private. I want to tell you what God has done for me, for my soul. You recognize the Psalter number? Come, hear, all ye that fear the Lord, while I with grateful heart record what God has done for me. I cried to Him in my distress, and now His wondrous grace I bless, for He has set me free. That's what we've sung since we began singing the Psalter. And that's the text that we have before us this evening. David says, I want to tell you something personal about me. This is what God has done for me. So I want to call your attention to the personal testimony of the saved soul. I want to recognize immediately that that makes us nervous to think that somebody in a Protestant Reformed church is going to make a personal testimony. Well, in this Protestant Reformed church, David is making a personal testimony, and he's leaving an example for you. Probably we reject personal testimonies as Arminian. Maybe something at least less than Reformed and Orthodox, and yet, this is a personal testimony of a saved soul. And I say it once more, I'll say it again in the sermon. David stands as an example for us that we ought to walk in those ways too. So let's see this personal testimony of the saved soul. First of all, testimony of what? Second, testimony to whom? And thirdly, testimony why? So, first of all, what does David say? Secondly, Who is David speaking to? And thirdly, why would David do such a thing? The personal testimony of the saved soul. David is simply expressing what God, every word here is important, has done for his soul. For his soul. David could testify... What God has done for the church and for them generally. And I remind you, that's the first part of the psalm. Now he's not doing that any longer. We could do that too. We could recount history what God has done for the Protestant Reformed churches, what God has done for this congregation, what God has done for the Reformed churches for 500 years, what God has done for his church all through church history all the way back to the beginning of creation. We could speak of that and we ought to speak of that, but that's not our text. David could have said what God did for his earthly life, for his body. And God did many things for his body. God made David healthy. God made David strong. God provided David with material things. And so we could do that too. God has opened his hand wide to us. He's Given to us such abundance, it's hardly been, uh, can be compared to any time in the history of God's church. We are very, very rich. We ought to reckon with that, recognize that, confess that. But that's not this psalm either in this text. David could also have said what he, by God's grace, had done for God's church. And he, by God's grace, had done a great deal. Children, what did David do for God's church? Well, first David could have said, with my bare hands, I killed a lion. I took him by the beard with one hand, and I slew him with the other hand. And I did the very same thing to a bear. And that gave me confidence, David could have said to you, that when the giant Goliath stood before God's church, I wasn't afraid to stand before him with but a slingshot. And I even told Saul, I'm willing to do that because I've seen what God did through me to the lion and to the bear. And so we could say things like that too. What by the grace of God we have done for the church. God enables us to do many things for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not either what David does in this text. And what David certainly does not do and what David would not have been permitted to do is to say what he had done for the salvation of his soul. The first three, what he didn't do in our text, are permissible. This fourth is not permissible because David was not an Arminian. David was not a synergist. And an Arminian is a synergist. And that just means that man and God cooperate in the saving of our soul. David doesn't say here, I want you to hear what God and I did together to accomplish my salvation. None of that. He says, listen. Listen carefully. I want you to listen to what God has done. God, God alone has done for my soul. And what God did for my soul is marvelous. And if we can take that Old Testament text Translate that into New Testament language, and you'll see as we go along that that's permissible. This is what David said one word Christ, save my soul from sin. I was in terrible trouble. And now follow with me in the psalm if you have your Bible open. Trouble, trouble. The trouble that David was in was severe. And it was so severe that there was no way that he could have delivered himself from that trouble. That's why at the very end of the psalm, the climax of it is a reference to mercy. In David's trouble, from which he could not extricate himself, someone had to come and show him mercy. There is a mercy for those who are in trouble who could help themselves. You're merciful to your child when your child falls and skins his knee. You feel pity for him. You lift him up and you put a bandage on that knee. That's mercy. But the child could have done that himself. Gotten up. Been a little bit tough. Gone to the bathroom. Washed the sore. Put a bandage on it. And been okay. That's mercy, though, that you did it for him. But this mercy, and biblical mercy, is the pity that someone shows someone else who cannot Help himself. Very important to remember that definition of mercy. Pity for someone who cannot help himself. And then the reaching down in that pity to lift him up out of that misery and make him blessed. That's mercy. Well, the trouble that David was in was the trouble of sin. And of course, this is child play. Theology, that is. Theology that even children understand. Trouble. Deep trouble. Such trouble that I cannot deliver myself from it. And if you want to know what that trouble is, I put my finger on sin. That's why David speaks in the psalm about iniquity. If I, verse 18 says, if I regard iniquity... In my heart, the Lord will not hear me. There he is pointing his finger at what his trouble was. Sin, guilt, pollution, actual sin, original sin, sins of omission, sins of commission. He violated God's law. He broke God's covenant. He didn't keep God's the promises that he made to God. God, the good God, the gracious God, the God who delivered him, gave him a place in his kingdom, made David a part of his family so that David could put his feet under God's table. That God David offended so that he says in other places, I have sinned against thy grace and provoked thee to thy face. That's what I did. That's my trouble. That's my misery. But you know what? David says, the pity that God showed me, I want you to see. Now come. And look, and stand with me by the altar. And see on the altar the burnt sacrifice that God provided of a substitute. An innocent, pure lamb that did not deserve to have his throat slit and die with his blood shed. And a lamb that was slain and then burned Symbolic of the wrath of God coming down upon him and even David in the Old Testament dim light of the Old Testament knew what that was all pointing to. I want you to see what God has done for my soul. He provided for me a sacrifice. And he applied that sacrifice to my heart. And now I'm free. And so the what of the testimony of the saved soul today is just that. Now we don't stand symbolically by the Old Testament altar, but we stand symbolically by the cross. And with our hand, as it were, on the cross, thinking about that place of the burnt offering, we say, come. And I want you to hear what God has done for my soul, and always thinking about that cross, say, I was in trouble. Deep trouble. And the trouble that I was in was such that there is no way in all of the world that I could deliver myself from it. I want you to know that. I believe that. I felt that. And then God came and showed me Pity and mercy saw me in a position that I could do nothing about, not even cry out in misery from it, and God reached down in mercy and delivered me from it. And he did that by the sacrifice of his own son. The sacrifice of an innocent victim who hung there as a substitute for me. I ought to have been there. That should have been me. And what he did in the compressed space of 33 years, especially at the end of his life, suffering hell, an eternity of hell, that's what I deserve. I know that. I want you to know that. I feel that. I've felt that. I see that. And when I think about that, That what I deserve is not hell compressed into 33 and a half years because I could never endure that. What I deserve is hell extended forever and ever and ever and ever. Do you ever think about that, hell? Do you ever think of the possibility that when you die, your destiny is not heaven, but hell? And that hell never, ever, ever Ever, 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 ever ends. But God, in his goodness to me, chose me, sent Christ for me, provided a sacrifice for me, and paid for my sins. You want to know what Christ has done for me? What God has done for me, one word, Christ. That's all I need to say. Except in that one word, Christ. In that bud, as it were, is everything that flowers out into the confession that we need to make about what God has done for my soul. Christ for me. Christ with me. Christ in me. It's all Christ. What has God done? Cry. Christ. My cry for help has turned to joy because He sent me Christ. Christ for me so that I will not die because He died. Christ in me so that I am not dead, but I'm alive with the life of Christ and the life that I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's my life. Christ for me. Christ in me. Christ with me. And we could go on and on, but think of Christ with me. I'm not alone. He's my bridegroom. I'm not alone. He's my friend. I'm not alone. He's my brother. And He's a brother that sticks closer than an earthly brother. He's my companion, Christ. He makes a place for me in God's house so that I may put my feet under the table, that table, and sit around it with all of the other people of God and partake of His body and blood and live. It's all Christ. My life is Christ. My soul is at rest and peace and full and satisfied because of Jesus. I said a moment ago that I could go on and on. That that bud, think of a bud with all the petals compressed in it, children. And how that bud, when it opens up, keeps opening. And there's so many petals, you can't even count them. That's what we're talking about. This flower opens up and we begin saying so many things about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no end to it. And I use that illustration and say that we could go on and on because that's the text. When David says in verse 16, I will declare what he has done for my soul, one of the things he means by that is, listen, I'm going to shout to you. I'm going to make it loud enough that everyone can hear. And he also means that I am going to recount, that's another way to translate that word, every single element of the goodness of God to me in Christ. And when he says recount, he uses the form of a verb that means literally to go on and on and on and on and never stop. And so that's what he encourages us to do when we speak to others about our faith. And he helps us to do that here too. Listen to what God has done for my soul. I cried to him and he listened to me. He heard me. He attended to the voice of my prayer. But then back up in the psalm to those other explanations of what God did. David could tell you about going through the water, his own flood, and through the fire, the fiery trials that he experienced. He could tell you about the men that rode over his head. He could tell you about the time God put him in a net. He could tell you about the time God laid affliction on his loins he could tell you and so we can too fire for you flood for you affliction upon your loins so that though no one else knows it, you do and if someone asked you you might not even be able to tell them because it's so so painful Can you tell them that God is bringing you out into a wealthy place? Or express the hope that He will? You may. Come, come, says the psalmist. And let me tell you, what God has done for my soul so much more. Now the applications of this in the first place, are that this is what catechism prepares you, young people and children, to do? The institution of catechism in a Reformed church is to help you articulate what God has done for you. You think about that. Would you, children, be able to say what God has done for you? If someone asked you, what has God done for you? What would you say? Catechism is intended to help you formulate in words that do not come merely from your head, but from your heart, what God has done for you. And so when you go to catechism, children, the very first book of the first year in catechism, in first grade, this is the question that's asked you. Who is your creator? And your answer, God. God. And then the second question in that first book. Did God create all things? And your answer, yes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the third question. How do you know this about creation? And you answered, God tells us about it in his word, the Bible. God, God, God. And when that confession is made personal, the little children are able to say, God made me. From the earliest days in catechism, catechism is training the children to make this confession, what God has done for me. And now reach all the way from the first year in catechism to the last year in catechism and open the essentials book and listen to the very first question. What is, above all things, most precious? How would you answer that? This is the way the young people answer it. The knowledge... Of the true God through Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's the first question of the last book. And the last question of the last book asks. What is the blessedness of the new heaven and the new earth? And The young people are intended to respond in a personal way. To dwell without sin. In the blessedness of God's everlasting covenant of grace. Catechism trains the young people as Christians to articulate what God has done for them. And catechism will go on and on. Catechism isn't the gospel in a thumbnail so that after a year or two you have everything you need. God loves me, Jesus died for me, I'm thankful. Or in a couple of years in junior high or high school, you learn about the issues of the day, social issues, abortion and war and so forth. That's not catechism, although those things are not off limits in catechism. But we have in catechism, from day one in first grade all the way to the end of high school, What God has done in Jesus Christ so that that bud opens up into a flower and all of the petals are seen and they understand the children do. Everything that God has done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything. The eternal, eternal root of what God does for me in His counsel. Where unconditionally He chose me. He chose me. Why did He choose me? Not because of anything in me, but because of grace. His election of me was unconditional. And that also means in that eternal counsel that God passed by others in His decree of election and rejected them. And that accentuates for me the grace that's shown to me because He ought to have rejected me. That's what God has done for me. And it started way back in the heart and mind and will of God. And then catechism deals for seven years with what God did. He made the worlds. He created man in His own image who fell and became miserable and fell into a trouble that he can't deliver himself from and needs Christ. To give Him salvation. And if you young people in essentials are listening, these are the six chapters of Reformed Dogmatics. God created man who fell. God provided Christ to provide us salvation. And that salvation comes to us in the church. And it will never fail us all the way to the very end. Eschatology. God, man, Christ, salvation, church, the last things. Catechism talks about everything. All of the history that God worked in the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of the theology, the doctrine of God that is behind that history and explains that history. But look, look, the very center of that history is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so that nothing, nothing, nothing makes sense has any significance except from the cross. So that the counsel of God has Christ at the center. The creation of God was on account of Christ, for Christ, by Christ, the cross of Christ. And when you're going to look into eternity, everything is going to focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God has done for me. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ. When He chose me, He chose me in Christ. When I fell in Adam, I fell into the arms of of Christ and all of history, all of history is God's working out of His counsel so that all of His people, His chosen ones, may be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can say that. You can say everything you know about God, wherein do you remember? Ought we to know God? You ought to know something about God. And the Catechism book teaches you to learn about God in His essence, His names, His attributes, His persons, and His works. You have to know something about Jesus so that if someone asks you what Jesus did for you, and asks you, well, who Jesus is, you can begin confessing. I know Jesus in His names, and His natures, and His offices. And his states. I remember that from catechism. And if you want to know what Jesus did for me, I first want to tell you about Jesus. This is who he is. He's God and man. And his natures are that. And his offices are this. And his states are. And you could go on and on. Not in a cold dogmatic way, but in a marvelous confession. This is who my Savior is. Catechism is preparing us To articulate what God has done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second application related to this is that catechism prepares us to make a personal confession. Now not what God has done for others in Christ. That God chose men. That Jesus redeemed some people. That heaven is going to be the destiny of perfection for a limited number but that God chose me and Jesus died for me and the Holy Spirit of Christ dwells in me and I am united to God's Son by faith. We confess our faith. As I develop this second application for a few more minutes, I want to point out that there's a history of this question in Reformed churches. That is, what is it that you confess after you finish Catechism and want to stand before the congregation and say, I want to confess my faith. What is it? And some in Reformed church history said that confession of faith is merely a confession of historical faith. That is, that you believe that what the Bible teaches is true. But you do not have to confess, some said, that what the Bible teaches is true for you. And supposedly, there were sensitive Dutchmen in certain areas of the Netherlands who could not come to confidence of faith, and they wanted to permit these sensitive people who weren't certain about their salvation to make a confession of their faith, even though they couldn't say, Jesus died for me. And in some of the churches, they allowed these people even to come to the Lord's table. In others of those churches, they would not permit them to come to the Lord's table, but to make another confession of faith that was a personal confession of faith. What is it that we believe in the Protestant Reformed churches when a young man or a young woman confesses his or her faith? Are they confessing personal faith or are they confessing historical faith? Are they confessing that they believe that what the Bible teaches is true, or are they confessing that what the Bible teaches is true for them? And I trust that you know it's the latter. Confession of faith is confession of faith. If you're interested, you may look in our Acts of Synod about 50 years ago, where this question came up in one of the church's overtures, church Synod, to formulate an introduction and then a conclusion to the three questions of confession of faith because this church thought it could be put in a setting that was more personal. The committee that Senate appointed for that job decided that it would also be good to formulate the questions in a different way so that the emphasis was not just on objective truth, do you believe what the Bible teaches, to be the true and perfect doctrine of salvation, but to make it personal, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe He's your Savior? And after a decade of labor, nothing happened. But the conclusion of the matter is, is that Synod said, and this is our confession, that when young people make confession of faith, it's personal, personal. And when the elders in the consistory room ask them questions, they must not merely ask them to list For example, the attributes of God that are communicable and the other attributes of God that are incommunicable. And if they're able to articulate that doctrine past them, but consistories are to ask the young people, when you've confessed the attributes of God and say you believe them, does that apply to you? And when you confess who Jesus is in His humanity and His divinity Do you believe that He died for you? Do you have faith? And no one in our churches ought ever to question that because our own creed asks what faith is. And we confess, and you 8th and ninth graders know that, that faith is not only a certain knowledge, whereby I hold for a truth everything that the Bible reveals to us, but also a confidence. A confidence that it is for me. Salvation, righteousness, and everlasting salvation is mine. That's what faith is. And that's what we confess. And that's what catechism must prepare young people to do. Confess what God has done for me. Now David invites the God-fearing neighbors to hear. He motions with his hands, come to me, but he's not motioning to Moab, I'd like you to listen. He's not motioning to the Philistines, you too, and the Syrians come and hear, and the Egyptians from the south come, I've got a testimony to make for you. He says, we're going to do this in-house, privately, quietly, and you who fear God, as I fear God, must hear what I have to say to you. Now, that's not to say that we don't have something to say to the Assyrians, Philistines, Syrians, and Egyptians. We certainly do. And we ought to let our light shine before men that they too may glorify God. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Paul repeats that when he says in Colossians 4, to walk in wisdom with a view to those who are outside. And Peter repeats that in the language that we all remember. Be ready... Be ready to give an answer to those outside who ask you of the hope that you have. There is that. We ought to be ready for that. We ought to pray for opportunities to do that. And when we do that, we say the very same thing. Not what you ought to believe, but what I believe. Not the hope that you ought to have, but the hope that I have. Be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you, why do you have hope? And then you say, because God in Christ has done for my soul such marvelous things. Listen, I'll tell you what God has done for me. And then you let God use that testimony. You may call them to faith. You may call them to repentance. The heart of our testimony outside and inside is what God has done to us. But that's not this text. This text is, believers, come and listen. Keep the unbelievers out for this opportunity. And just let's, as God fears, talk. So that same word that's translated terrible in verses 3 and 5. How terrible art thou in thy works. Is the word that comes out in our text when he says all ye that fear God. Same word except in its little bit different form, the same idea. And it doesn't mean I want you who are terrified of God to come and listen, but I want you who have the same awe in your soul because of what God has done for you to listen to me while I tell you what God has done for me because you are the only ones who really will understand what God has done for me. So assemble around me. And now picture David doing that. He's a mature Christian now. He's asking other Christians to come and he's setting an example to them and creating an atmosphere, creating an atmosphere where they're comfortable to do the very same thing with others. Notice that David takes the initiative here. He doesn't sit back and say, as some of us are tempted to say, well, when someone asks, I'll tell them, And when opportunity arises, I'll speak, David creates an opportunity. David says, this is going to happen, and it's going to happen under my watch. So David here stands as an example for us to make personal testimonies of our faith to others. Now I come back to that nervousness that some of us have about personal testimonies. That nervousness is probably justified because in the past, the personal testimonies perhaps pushed the preacher to sit down in the pew and ask all of the people of God to come up in the worship service and give their testimonies, so that the preaching was pushed aside and replaced by personal testimonies, and we understand that's wrong. Sometimes those personal testimonies, even if they weren't in public worship, just went out of bounds. When each story that followed the preceding story had to be better than the story that it followed. And that's not proper. And some of the personal testimonies were such that they left the impression that the only testimony you could give is if you had an experience like the Apostle Paul did. I was living in unbelief. I was a rebel against God. And one day, and I can tell you the date, God came to me and everything at that point became different in me. And then others who didn't have those kinds of stories to tell, didn't have anything to say. And pretty soon you ran out of those stories to tell. Well, some of God's people may have that kind of story to tell. Maybe some of you do. That's good. But that does not mean that the others of you do not have a story to tell about what God has done for your soul. You and I, especially as mature Christians, need to create an atmosphere where others are comfortable to do this. And shall we not start at home Or dad at devotions comes home from work, opens the Bible, and when he's applying the Scripture to his wife and children, says, I want you to know what God did for me today. And it didn't need to be anything dramatic, just that God preserved him. And he loves God for that. He's thankful to God for that. But he makes it comfortable for his children To say, Dad, this is what God did for my soul. I cried to him in my distress. And he heard me. He didn't turn away my plea. And then mom says, yes, when I regarded iniquity, and I have, it wasn't good in my life. But then God brought me to repentance. To sorrow for sin. And I laid hold again on Christ. And then my soul was at peace. And I was able to go to sleep. You ever have it? Mom says to the children. Maybe when dad's gone. That you can't sleep. Is it possible. My dear child. That it's because. You're not living. In faith. And gratitude. And the comfort of knowing that what God does for you. Is so good. And that he'll deliver you out sometime into a wealthy place. It ought to start at home. It ought to continue in the Bible study. So that when we get together on a weeknight. And we open up the scripture. After we've explained what that word means. We're willing to open up a little bit. And say what that word means for me. For me. And from the home to the Bible study. To after church. What are you going to talk about after church? Penn State? Why? 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 Hunting? That's starting soon? Why? it's Sunday. You just heard a sermon. You just had a meal this morning and another meal this evening. You brought your gifts to God. What great things God has done for us. And we're interested in talking about those things. No wonder our children don't have the comfort, the will, even the mindset to speak of spiritual things because they're not hearing The mature Christians speak of those things. And David now stands as an example for us so that we are able to speak to others. We are able. We're able. From a certain point of view, I'm not permitted to speak outside of the church about what God has done for me. Partly because I won't know what to say. I've never spoken about what God's done for me. Until I meet someone who asks me about my faith, and then I stutter and mutter because I've not ever articulated it. But isn't it hypocrisy to speak to somebody on an airplane or at the gym or across the hedge in the summer in your yard about what God has done for you if you've never said that to others in the congregation? David stands as an example for us of what we must pray to be able to do. And then when you ask why, I don't mean by that question why. What are we aiming at? What's the goal in this confession? That's a good question to ask. That's not our concern right now. I'm interested in asking that question, what drives you? What fuel is in you that makes you do that? Is it because you're commanded to do that? It's what you must do? Well, there's something to that. As I've repeated, David's example here becomes a mandate for us. Some mandates for us come by way of commands. Thou shalt. Other mandates come to us by the example of the church or believers in Scripture. And that example becomes a mandate. And so, we have a mandate here by the example of David. And we're called to obey that. And Jesus repeats it. Confess me before men, and only those who confess me before men will I confess before my Father in heaven. And silence is denial. So that's one answer to the question, why? Because we must. But that's not. What's going on here? Is it this, that if someone would ask you, why do you want to do that? You say, well, that's just because I'm a a Christian, and that's what Christians do. It's the way God made me. It's my makeup. If you ask a bird, why do you fly? The bird will say, because I'm a bird. And a lion, why do you roar? Because I'm a lion. And a deer, why do you leap? he would say, because I'm a deer. That's the way God made me. And you could say, that's what the Christian says. Why do you speak of what God has done for you? And the answer, one answer could be, and that's a good one, because that's the way God made me. It's in my nature to do that. Not my first nature. Not the nature I got from dad and mom. There's nothing good in that nature. And that nature is very strong in me. To be silent, to be ashamed, to be embarrassed. To talk about anything but the Gospel and what God's done when I'm speaking to other Christians. That's the nature that's strong in me. But I'm talking about the other nature. The new nature. The man that God put in you, which is Jesus Christ. According to that nature, I've been recreated and now it's in me to speak. He made me a priest. And it's in me to devote myself to God. He made me a king. And it's in me to rule on his behalf. And he also made me a prophet. So that it's in me to speak. And prophets bubble over. Bubble over. Is that the reason? That gets close. That gets close. But is not this the explanation of why that we want to. Not merely because that's the way God made us, but because what God has done for us is so marvelous that that's the main thing I want to do in my life, to let it be heard by everyone around me how good God has been for me. I want to. That's what happened with David. David says, come and listen. All ye that fear God, while well, I with grateful heart record what God has done for me. I cried to Him in deep distress, and now His wondrous grace I bless. He set me free. I'm free. I'm free. God did this for me. And I can't help but bubble over with that reality. And that's the difference between a deer and a man between a lion and a redeemed child of God, between whatever other creature, a bird and a Christian. If you would ask them, they wouldn't be able to say. They just do it because that's the way God made them. Maybe when we get to heaven, we'll find out something different. But the difference between us and creatures, brute creatures, is that we think we will And we're glad to think and will about what God has done for us. And if you ask me why I want to tell you what God has done for me, it's this. God was so good to me. To me. To me. And He gave Christ for me. He gave His own Son for me. His Son. He didn't spare His Son for me. Now, I want to bless His wondrous grace. And that's the way it is for the child of God. And that explains a Christian. And that perhaps explains why so many of us are so quiet. We don't think about what God has done for us in Christ. Think about Penn State and deer and buying and selling and vacations. So let's go home tonight, shall we? And not, not talk about how guilty we feel about being silent and why perhaps it's explained by our Dutch culture or our our upbringing or our parents or our history. Don't talk about that. There's a place for that. Confessing your guilt about being silent. But let us go home tonight and do what David did. Say to our wife, say to our children, say to the people of God after church, I want you to know how good God's been for me, and I am glad. And that's what drives me in all of my life. I am so, so profoundly thankful. Personal testimony of the saved soul. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy goodness to us in Christ. Put in our hearts so that it comes out upon our lips. Praise of Thy name. O Father in heaven, forgive us Sometimes when we speak of spiritual things, we are but critical of others. Other times we speak of spiritual things only from our minds and what we know enable us to speak of those things that Thou hast done for our own souls. And cover us in the blood of Thy Son that we may be a glad people. In His name we pray, amen.